what's happening. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Dude, I wanted to say thanks, first off, for taking the time to be with me this morning to do this. My pleasure. Um, So I'm with Gareth Blackwell, designer, educator, creator, maker. Um, If you would start me, kind of walk me down the process of your educational journey and how that kind of unfolded to where you are here. Okay, so um, uh, I grew up um, pretty strapped for cash as a kid. Uh, We were... Uh, we were broke. Um, my parents were educators. My dad was a minister. My mom was a teacher. So we uh, we have a family history of not picking lucrative careers. So uh, as a kid, you know that 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 affected me, and or I thought it affected me in certain ways. So um, most of the choices I made uh, early on, within junior high, high school, and then college, were to figure out how do I not end up broke. Mm, okay and you know and that's that's nice I mean that should be the goal of anybody going to college is how to not be broke but um, uh, more than that I was like nah, then how can I be just loaded so um, all through high school uh, my goal was to get college paid for and then when I went to college my, I was going to do uh, law school because I was like hey you know lawyers making like 450 an sure. hour yeah. whatever it's all mm-hmm. good and I thought very naively that oh well I, you know I'm, I can argue with folks so I'd be a great lawyer right because this is a very naive view of what what the field entails so um, started off doing communications in college because I figured that was a good uh, kind of pre-law route learn to speak learn to write good to go <laughs> um, uh, during the summers of my freshman and sophomore year I interned at a courthouse back home and I was doing all kinds of stuff and by Around July of the second summer, I mm-hmm. learned that I hated everything about it. Where was back home? Uh, Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Go, okay. So, um, you know, the people there were great, and I met some really fantastic people, and, the, and a lot of the work wasn't terrible, but I realized that I was never going to have, like, a deep passion for that work. It just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met a lawyer there who um, was kind of disheveled, you know, the tie was kind of askew and always a little loose. His hair was all scruffy. He looked a little like he had like slept in his clothes every every once in a while, um, and he always smelled a little bit like alcohol. And he came in a lot looking for files and and references and things. And and I helped him out. And one day he just kind of looked at me and very gruffly said, "Why are you here?" <laughs> and I said, uh, "Well, you know, I work here." And he's like, "Yeah, why are you working here? Like you're young, do something." And uh, I said, well, I want to go to law school and be a lawyer. He looked me dead in the eyes, and he said, don't do it. He said, every day, what I do is I break people's families up. I take people's kids away. I get uh, in between siblings who are fighting over their dead parents' belongings. And he's like, don't do it. Mm. And that was kind of the nail in the coffin. Like, I had already committed to not doing law school. But that was just like, that was the thing I needed to just kind of give me the reassurance. Like, yeah, you're probably going down the right path and not doing this so it's great for whoever that is for but for me it just wasn't going to happen so when I got back to college I was on a full scholarship which meant I couldn't waste semesters yeah and now I'm at a point where I'm like oh I've done two years in this communications program what do I do Mm -hmm. well luckily the next semester was an entry course into communication design so it was design principles kind of 101 by the I don't know 10 or 20 minutes into the first class with that professor, I was like, oh, I, this is a thing? Like, I can do this? Mm. 
So, um, you know, I'd always been interested in art. I'd always been um, like a maker. I drew a lot as a kid, you know, the kind of regular story. Um, and so it really piqued my interest. And I thought, wow, this is great. So I looked at the other courses I could take, and I, I was like, oh, I can do an entire emphasis within my major gotcha. in design. So I started doing it, started doing graphic design. Um, when I got done, got to the end of undergrad, I had uh, done an honors thesis, uh, and that professor from that course had been my advisor. And I was talking to him, and I said, you know, I just don't, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do um, after uh, I, I graduate, because he had, he had hooked me up with uh, some connections in New York at some magazines, and I was going to go be, do layout design in New York, and um, had some things lined up, and I was like, it's just not... I don't know if it's the best path right now. I'm not sure. I don't feel like I've learned a lot. He said, okay, well, here's the deal. Apply to grad school. You'll be my graduate assistant. We'll do stuff. We'll keep talking about this, and we'll, I'll teach you how to start doing things like consulting. Um, so I did. Stuck around. And uh, while I was there, uh, the first weekend before the first semester of grad school started, uh, he said, okay, I'm going to tell you what you need to do as my graduate assistant. You're going to be in charge of my website. And I just kind of looked at him, and I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And he was like, you're going you're gonna to be doing the upkeep and the design of it. I was like, I don't do that. I don't know any of that. Hmm. Okay. And he goes, well, my old graduate assistant is leaving town next week. Catch up with him and figure it out. <laughs> As if it were, you know, something easy to pick up. Sure. You know, like miniature golf. So um, I call up his old graduate assistant. I say, Alan, what, um, how do I do this? And he's like, well, you know, I'm leaving like tomorrow morning so I've got 30 minutes today I can show you a few things <laughs> and I was like I don't know web design but I feel like this is not how it works so um, we sit down and he shows me some stuff about tags and he shows me things about uh, kind of the makeup and setup of everything and I was like okay um, I guess I can wing it and over the next two years I taught myself web design Okay. Because I had to. Yeah. Because that was my job, hmm. and uh, it's just how it worked. So over that same two years of uh, master's work, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I kept doing projects, and I was able to, by the end of graduate school, of those two years of graduate school, I was able to sit at the table with some of the clients, which were uh, as extensive as the AARP, um, major like German media companies, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, the State Department. I was able to sit with them and actually have a voice in conversations in terms of what they should be doing in their communication structure wow. and how it should work. Um, and here I was, just some kid who liked design, and I'm having conversations. And so I started to see that um, actually the things that you learn in creative fields uh, actually help you shape an outlook on the world that is necessary and needed. Mm. So um, it happened to be at the same university, um, there was a, a professor who was not coming back for undisclosed reasons. <laughs> and um, they were in a pinch because he had kind of um, been asked to leave like almost like a week before the semester started. And so they had nobody to teach these courses. And they were like, hey, Gareth, you do photography, you do design, can you come teach photojournalism and lay out and design for us at the undergrad level? So I stuck around and I did. And, you know, it was one of those things, I had a job lined up at a publication that a lot of people are familiar with uh, called Highlights for Kids. Mm -hmm. I was going to be an editor there um, and was on the trajectory to be part of their corporate office in like five years. And 
I was like, well, you know, actually, this sounds kind of nice. And how okay. old were you at the time? I was uh, uh, 23. Okay. <laughs> so stepping into a full-time wow, faculty yeah. position at 23 uh, was interesting because the first day of class, that first semester, even though I'd been teaching some courses in grad work, I came in and it took a while to get the students to believe I was actually the teacher. Yeah. Because some of them were two years younger than me. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> I did that for four years. Um and about halfway through that, uh, I realized that this was kind of, with the education I had, this was as good as it was going to get. Sure. And uh, my wife and I started talking, and we decided to apply for grad school, applied to places, and luckily one of the faculty members had come from VCU, and she said, hey, um, having known you for the last three or four years, there's this interesting little program at a place called VCU. And I was like, what's VCU? Like, where is that? Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, it's in Richmond, Virginia. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll check it out. Sure, that's, that's nice. And uh, so I look it up, and it's this MATX program. It's interdisciplinary. It's uh, the arts, English, and communications. And I was like, okay, this feels kind of perfect because I, I yeah. do art. I have a communications background, and my mother's an English professor, so I've, I've been bathed in this stuff. I'm like, seems great. So I look at it, and all the courses were just yes, this is great. We came up, we visited, good to go. Um, confirmed everything, we're like, yep, we're going to be in Richmond, mm-hmm. and then uh, just started rocking, got involved with where I am now through uh, Matt Woolman, who is my boss and was at the time on my dissertation committee, and uh, yeah, now I'm here, and got the full-time position last year, and don't have any intention of leaving. So, so. last year... So yeah, the first full so I had, a, like most folks, you, you get in this, what I affectionately refer to as an adjunct holding pattern, where okay. you just get to circle the airport for a few years, and at some point they tell you to land a plane, hopefully, and they did, so, yeah. Okay, so where along that, that timeline did you start kind of venturing into your own um, entrepreneurial spirit and kind of like creating your first venture? And So that's funny, because uh, I didn't even realize I was doing it. Yeah. Uh, the the wonderful thing about the professor who headed up the program I was in that did all the design, uh, the design emphasis uh, stuff, he kind of saw the writing on the wall. I mean, he was an industry consultant, and he was at the top of his field, so he could see things changing at different levels than a lot of academics were. Okay. And so in 2003, he was talking about how we would need to be able to build our own businesses. Interesting. And so his thing, he had had a history working in magazines, so he was like, hey, everybody, you should, if you want to go work for a magazine, just launch your own, just do your own. So his uh, upper level and capstone courses were all based off of entrepreneurial business uh, sort of ideas. So we had courses where we were developing you know, five-year business plans um, for new media ventures and things like that. So entrepreneurship was just baked into the curriculum and it was baked in at such a level that I just assumed this is just how you do things. Like this is just the okay. mindset you have. Like it wasn't, it wasn't this having to like re-educate or introduce a different idea to people. It was, this is part and parcel of what it is. And that was really helpful because um, my first year teaching, I'm teaching this to my students, and then halfway through that first year of teaching, the market collapses in 2008. Uh-huh. And then the numbers coming out the next year are talking about, you know, 60% of students are going to not be able to find a job in the first three months after graduation. Mm-hmm. You know, half the people graduating will be contractors or freelancers. And I was like, oh, thank God that I actually learned this stuff. Because if I had been just going your kind of standard, you know, part and parcel, rubber stamp business route, I'd be going crazy like everybody else. 
But instead, it was just like, oh, the, the circumstances have changed a little bit, but my mindset hasn't. Sure. The way I think about yeah. it hasn't. So I've been working uh, with my boss. I was working with his consulting company, doing a lot of work, and I just decided, you know, one, I'm paying too many taxes because he's paying me as a contractor, so my tax rate is just too high. Yeah. I need to have a business. So uh, my first business was um, mine, my design company. So it informally launched in 2007, I guess, so about 13 years it's been going on. And that's wide open air consulting. Wide open air, yeah. And so we... Uh, it's been a it's been a fun up and down journey over thirteen years, um, but it's taught me a lot of agility in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. That you let the business be what the business needs to be, um, that you don't hold to some weird strict guideline and then run the thing to the ground. So it's expanded. Some years it's contracted. Some years I have people working with me, you know, forty hours a week. Some years I have nobody. It's just me. Um, okay. For the last three years we haven't even had a website because a hundred percent of our clients have been word of mouth and referral and I saw myself wasting too much time building a website interesting now that's something you're never gonna have somebody teach you in a class yeah so nobody's gonna say hey figure out if you need a website they'll just mm-hmm. say no you have to have one go do it and I would say if you're starting off definitely but you know it's gotten to a point now where I want to focus more on the consulting aspect so I'm redeveloping the website and getting it back going and getting it up to steam again because it will pay off the time will be worth it um, so started doing that and one of the first things that I really worked myself into um, is uh, a student of mine when I was in grad school contacted me and said hey I've been doing some graduate work in Japan and I met a guy would you be interested in talking about maybe starting a business and I was like I don't know what like yes but I don't know what you mean like I'm, I'm interested but I have no idea and he said well there's this local bar below my apartment. When I moved to Japan, I didn't know anybody, so I just would go down there because they always had soccer games on, and I'd just grab a beer, watch a game. Well, there was this guy that would do the same thing almost every day. So we were always there, and after a few days, we were just like, hey, you're in here all the time, like, let's chat. So we started talking, come to find out that this guy who was coming into this bar to catch soccer games uh, owned the world's largest freshwater pearl farms. So. Interesting. He had been wholesaling and doing like white labeling and stuff like that for folks in Japan, but he wanted to do something for himself in the United States, but had tried and just had learned that the cultural differences made it difficult for him to really break into the market in terms of a marketing sort of standpoint. So he was like, would you want to do this? <laughs> just proposed it to my friend. And he said, uh, let me talk to some folks. Sure. So we developed a brand. We created packaging. We did all this stuff. We sold it. We made marketing plans. And, and honestly, it was crazy because it felt a lot like some kids in a treehouse just kind of... Making stuff. Making stuff. Yeah. But it's still weird because I tell students that, and they're just like, uh-huh, wh- wait, what? You <laughs> did what? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I still technically have 7% ownership in the company. I don't do much, but I still am a part of it. They feel in some material way. But it was amazing to kind of see how you can build a company out of nothing. Uh-huh. Because the first the first set of orders we had were in my friend's dad's house in Lake Charles, Louisiana. They were boxes in his dad's home office. Uh-huh. They were just sitting in there. And his mom would run things to the post office. And people would get sent $6,000 worth of pearls in certified mail that was wow. sitting in this office in a home. And so it took down a lot of the mystique and the weirdness that I thought, you know, with business, it's like, I understand it, but this is actually how a lot of businesses work, uh-huh. you know. And so 
um, kind of the bootstrap mentality was great. And it was like, we can make this happen. It doesn't have to take much, and we can start small and actually do some amazing things. Mm-hmm. Well, so you think coming at it with that kind of creative background definitely made it a lot easier to... Yeah, because, you know, something about the, the creative thinking process uh, built into it is this idea that at any moment I can pivot. This might not be the best direction. Sure. Something can change. Now, if I go in with a pre-modeled business strategy, well, little... screw that. Mm-hmm. Because what are you going to do? You're going to beat your head against that wall, even if that wall has a big sign on it that says, don't go this way. So with a creative approach, like, if I'm, if I'm drawing something, if I'm designing something, I can look at it and say, this isn't working for me. Let me try something else. Well, that might not work either. I could go back to what I started with. Well, that's fine. Because built into the process is that understanding that iteration is there. Trying again is there. So um, how do, what do we do? Well, we sketched out some stuff for packaging. We made some boxes. We got some prototypes. We didn't like the thing. The latch closed in the wrong way. The latch wasn't needed. We wanted to not have fasteners in the whole thing. We wanted to use magnets for closures. Like All of these different ideas were coming up. And so we went through these iterations of things and ideas. And... If one didn't work, we weren't bothered by that. Yeah, We didn't waste anything because we didn't go through a round of manufacturing. We had somebody be like, hey, make this box. And you get a crappy looking little box. But it functions right and it works and you like what's there and you like all the stuff. And then you send it to somebody and they create them for real and it's good to go. So, yeah. The creative process really was helpful because I feel like if it leads... If you're, if you're creative thinking, if you're creatively thinking about business, I think that you can have much more open, widespread things happen than if you are putting a business mind and just saying, can we be creative mm-hmm. this way? That's, one is the cart before the horse. Sure. And the other one is, is a cart that maybe you don't even need. Mm-hmm. It's not even a cart before the horse scenario. It's just, gotcha. what's the purpose? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So, and I know I'm, I'm, I teach in School of the Arts. I'm heavily biased in that way. Sure. I am a practicing artist uh, and maker, so, you know, some people might hear that, and like, it sounds pretty harsh on business, and I'm like, I feel like business is a tool, but uh, creativity is a practice, and so, that's just my two cents, though. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so, like, when this venture, or these ventures were kind of getting up, off, up and off the ground, and you began to grow pretty mm-hmm. rapidly, um, what were some of the more difficult... Uh, gaps and things you had to fill into that space. Hmm. You mean in terms of like skills or just things that uh, were met, like interpersonal, like or just anything? Yeah, just anything in general. Yeah, anything. Comes so, uh, what was nice is that uh, just like I told you with uh, learning web design, I uh, I learned how to just learn on the fly, which was a helpful task because mm. you apply that to anything, right? So, oh, I don't know how to do this. Well, I can read a book. I can look at a website. Can white website I can watch a tutorial I can ask somebody I can find out that's sure. not a that's not a, any sort of impediment for me so that was a very helpful thing because it really it made me realize that any gap that I found could always be filled and it didn't have to be by me always right so it's uh, the people that we had on our team like you would never put these four people together like if you were in a party somewhere you wouldn't point at them and be like they work together mm. we could not have been more different but it was hugely helpful. How did that come about? Um, it really was looking at like, oh, we need somebody who can do this thing. That person's good at that thing. Okay. And so, you know, we were we were friends. It wasn't. I'm not saying that like we didn't work well together or anything. We were friends. We all knew each other. 
but I never would have put us all in the same room on a, on a creative team doing entrepreneurial things. But it worked out really well. So um, the guy who went to Japan, he had been, he, he was just a very, like he was a boisterous, big personality. Mm -hmm. He was just ready to kind of talk and do this. He was a great head for things. Um, I've always been a very strategic thinker. So I'm like, what is going to happen if we do this? And then five steps down the road. And what about this and this? And so, um, you know, I developed strategic uh, marketing and things like that for us. Um, we had another guy who just was good at networking, just good at finding the people to put together. And we had another guy who just didn't want to do anything except uh, imagine. So he would be the one who would come up with crazy ideas for things like uh, the clasps we were using and then different ways to like join the boxes and things like that. And he was just kind of that imaginative person. Um, so he was the one that would just come in with like a, a ramshackle stack of papers and be like, here's stuff I've been thinking about. <laughs> to like sort through it and be like, what is this? <laughs> it's like, this is your homework for a class and this is on the back of a, a takeout menu and, you know. But it was a great team. So that was a good thing to learn. Um, the other thing is that uh, you actually don't need money to do most things. Like that's not the biggest issue people have. It's a fantastic excuse. Oh, 100%. Because people are like, well, I'll do it once I get some money. It's like, if you're not doing it before you get money, you're not going to do it if you have it. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to be the case. Because the beautiful thing about money is it gets its sticky little fingers and everything. So if I say, I'll get some money and then I'll do that. Well, once you get that money, you're probably going to find something else to do with it. That's just how money works. Most of us have a very hard time getting a chunk of money and then saying, oh, this has been earmarked already. I'm going to set it over here. So, you know, what can you do on a minimal budget? What can you do for 20 bucks? What can you do for 100 bucks? What can you do for 1000 bucks? right? I mean, when I started teaching, um, when I started in grad school teaching, so 15 years ago, um, people were talking about, you know, MVPs for under $5,000, and that was a big conversation. Mm. Then a lot of things change, and now you're at a point where people are saying MVPs for under 200 bucks, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, perfect. What can you give up that gets you 200 bucks this year, this semester, right? And, yeah. and most students, you can find something, right? Oh, absolutely. And it, you know, and, and it could be something as simple as, you know, uh, all right, I'm going to get like a dollar cheeseburger from McDonald's down the corner instead of you know, like spending seven or eight bucks at like Kava or Subway or something, and I'll mm -hmm. do that however many times I need to once a week for the year yeah. and now you've got enough to develop some sort of MVP um, so that was helpful the money wasn't that necessary um, but also learning heavily that like a lot of entrepreneurial stuff is relational it's highly relational okay. so if you don't have money if you don't have time if you don't have the clout right then what is left well people mm -hmm. you've got to actually connect with people um, which I think is one of the most beautiful things about entrepreneurship is that you can actually, if you if you focus in proper ways, uh, the user is paramount. Um, so people are a focus of it. And then the people who are helping you or enabling you, the network you develop, the collaborators you have, it's all highly relational. Because if I have four people that feel that they're underfunded and they can come together and collaborate, well, then we might actually get something that feels marginally funded. Right. Yeah. So we can pool our resources. We can do some things. There's something highly democratic about um, entrepreneurship that I think is great. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of just to piggyback off of that. So when it comes to finding these people, 
Um, and I think you kind of touched on it already, uh, advisors, managers. Um, what are some specific like personal qualities that you see kind of being really necessary to fit with you and important? Personal honesty. Personal honesty. Huge, huge thing. Um, and that's, you know, for everybody on a team. So the first thing is, uh, are you being honest with yourself about what you are good at and absolutely not good at? Interesting. Because uh, what I need is I need to not lie to myself about those things because if I'm bad at something, I need to find somebody who's good at it. Okay. So every business partner I've ever had, every uh, kind of collaborator I've ever worked with has had some sort of complimentary nature to mm-hmm. me. Um, I am uh, an introvert, so being at like a networking event will drain me. Okay. I can go to them, it's not a problem, but I get home and I'm just dead. Now, <clears throat> what that means is I tend to follow up the next day or two days later with somebody when I probably should follow up immediately. Mm. So I've understood this about myself, which means that I'm always looking for people who are those fantastic extroverts and the good networkers. Mm because they can provide the immediacy because they get done with an event and they're jacked up. They're energized, they're ready to do some more stuff and it's like, cool, you wanna send 20 follow-up emails? Because <laughs> I'm about to pass out. Yeah. Um, so it's things like that. Personal honesty I think is huge. That's a, a, a big thing, looking for a team. I think also um, like long vision, like the ability to be kind of long-suffering and patient with things is huge. Because we do very much live in a culture that has established over the last decade, decade and a half, this insidious, mythical idea that somehow by 25 you should be a billionaire. And most people will say, no, no, that's silly. And it's like, but that's still what you're aiming for. If you were making $60,000 a year, still pursuing your dreams at age 50, how does that make you feel at 22? And most folks are like, I don't want to do that. That's what I mean. We gotta have a long-term view. Most of the people that we see is actually successful outside of like, you know, really lucky overlaps of like the right time, the right place sort of things. They're in their 40s, 50s, 60s. You know, nobody, Warren Buffett is not complaining about his life. Mm-hmm. He's not complaining about the work he's put in and the success he's had. So having a patience to understand that this isn't a six month project. Yeah that it might take us two to three years to get initial funding. Mm-hmm. And it might take us a few years to get to stage two funding. And it might be a decade, and we still haven't got this thing off the ground. But that's where there's got to be some sort of passion. Um, and so we have to temper that, right? Because we feel like everything should be a little faster, a little quicker, a little more immediate. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it, yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that to be the case. But I haven't really ever experienced that. So... If you can be honest with yourself, if you can have some patience with things, but then if you can also have a work ethic that says the work needs to get done. I don't meet a lot of people with strong work ethics. Interesting. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, we believe we have strong work ethics because uh, there's a relativism to what hard work is that is very different than it's ever been in history. All right, so my, my grandparents, they woke up, they did all these chores and all this stuff before they went to school. Okay. And they did those chores because <clears throat> if those chickens they didn't feed in the morning died during the day, then they may not have dinner that night. Mm-hmm. Right? So there were, there were needs that were being met by hard work so that you understood like, that work was very important. We've gotten to a place now where you can go into any bookstore and see an entire section that deals with the, the 20, the 12, the 8, the 4-hour work week. Right? Where the whole thing is like, I'm going to do a ton of work so that I don't have to work. 
Okay. And I want people to say, no, give me the opportunity to do work. Interesting. And if I can do that, if I can get those type of people, it's like, we can burn the world to the ground. We can just make things happen. But it's hard to find them. Okay, well, with that being said, right now, do you spend, since 2007, kind of when you started this, do you find yourself spending more time, the same amount of time, or a little bit less time, kind of working on the businesses than you did in the early years? So much more. Okay. So much more. Interesting. Um, and I think the nice thing is, I'm not having to guess on what the work is. So when I started, I was like, well, I'll do this. I'll chase that rabbit down that trail. Uh, no, maybe that's not working. I'll do this over here. And now it's at a point where... Uh, I mean, even in the last 10 years, 10 years ago, if you would have asked me, you know, what is your business? I would have said, oh, I'm a, I'm a full service uh, design studio. And now when I hear those words, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. I'm not full service and I'm not a studio. Mm. I have a list of services, which is about three, and I am an agency. Okay. So what that means is I will find people that are better at certain things than I am and I will hire them to do the work and I will creatively direct it. So I have an agency model for the work I do. And I just, I will not do every creative project that you want, I just will not. Mm. Because I need to spend my time doing what's most important. And so, uh, a normal day during the busy season is gonna be get up, be at school, eight, nine in the morning, do my stuff, teach my classes. By mid-afternoon, I'm usually back home because I'm needing to do some client work. Also, I got two kids, so I want to be a good dad. <laughs> um, and uh, then I'll uh, do some client work, do some stuff for my, my personal company. Um, dinner in the evening with the family. Uh, once they go to bed around like 10, 10.30, I'll work three or four more hours, go to bed, wash, rinse, repeat. And that's fine. Um, also, I found that uh, I used to think that the work I did was very linear. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, everything needs to be designed. Everything needs to be about that. And I found that there's actually a really helpful thing in working uh, tangential to your field. So what that means for me is I am now a design and communications director for a local nonprofit art gallery. Okay. We've been named the best art gallery in Richmond two years in a row. And we started a podcast. And all this stuff actually helps me to contextualize and understand my work in a better way. Mm -hmm. Because I'm outside of just design. And now I'm talking to people that are like painters, and we're talking about things. I'm seeing overlap, and I'm actually doing things that feel more collaborative and interdisciplinary. So my work has become more interesting. Mm -hmm. I have become less enamored with certain things and become more bored with those things because they are not, they don't feel like they have a depth to them or a necessity. Sure. So, um, doing more work in different ways, um, but I think that's also part of it. You know, if you have somebody that starts going to the gym, well, they're gonna they're gonna just piss around on things for a little bit, and pick up a few weights there and there, and they're gonna go home, and they really won't have worked out much. Mm. Well, they're there for a few more months, and they get used to it. We're lifting some light weights. A few years down the road, your expectation is they would be able to lift more weight and lift it for longer, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be as taxing. Because they've grown in that way. And so that's what I mean by working more in different ways. Is that you just kind of get, you get used to it if you do it. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't, you're not as sore the next day, right? It's, you're able to do more of it because you've put in the work to establish uh, kind of that, that baseline for what it is. 
And was there a specific time in which you kind of made that, not necessarily pivot, but more so just realization? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I can almost put a day to it. Um, let's see. So it's been two years, two and a half years here. So I would say that about four to five years ago, um, the business had just, like, screeched to a just abrupt halt. Um, I had a business partner who pretty much sent me a text and was like, hey, I got to do me. Peace out. And just, that was it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, 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 but you're like our like marketing, networking, client acquisition person. What in the world? So mm -hmm. I had to had the wonderful benefit of being able to retool the entire company out of necessity. <clears throat> now what that meant is uh, in terms of client generation, almost none happened for nine to 12 months. So I was working on these piddly little nothing projects, making almost no money, taking huge losses. Um, and I was like, what's going on? And that's when I was like, I'm working harder, not smarter. Mm. And I need to rethink what's going on. Like, what am I actually wanting out of this? What do I want it to be? Because with any business, you're gonna get to a place where you feel like you're on autopilot. And once you realize that, it's like, oh, this is bad. Because autopilot's not a fun place to be. Because you have no vision about what's ahead, you've got no strategy for where you're headed. <coughs> and so that's kind of where I found myself. And I decided this isn't, uh, this isn't cool. Uh, about that time, my daughter was almost two. Um, and my wife and I were talking about wanting to have another kid. And so there were just a lot of things in life that were starting to put it in perspective. If it's just me, like, farting around in a in a crappy apartment in grad school, there's nothing really pressing on me to really do it better, do it bigger, unless I've just got some sort of weird, crazy internal drive. And most of us don't have that. Interesting, okay. Most of us have that internal drive because of exterior pressures. Mm -hmm. You know, so the reason I wanted to, the reason I got that scholarship for college is because I didn't want to be broke, mm -hmm. right? So I had an exterior pressure that was pushing on that. But most of us think, oh, I've got this interior thing where I can just make it happen. It's never going to be, no. The interior thing in me makes me take naps and watch YouTube. Like, yep. that's what it does. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, having, like, you know, my wife and kids, I'm going to be like, I need to support y'all. Okay, I need to change what this looks like. Okay, well, um, the business just crumbling and not doing anything. i got to change something. So it's going to do this. So there are things that push that way, and instead of crumbling, it actually strengthened. And so it's, you know, at sometimes there are people that will look at those points and they'll say, it's, it's your fight or flight. And I've always been a fight person, right? So, like, you pop around a corner and scare me, the first thing I'm going to do is, like, probably put up my fist to punch you because uh -huh. it's the fight response in me, which I think is helpful in entrepreneurship as well. Because if something goes bad and you're like, oh, I should peace out, yeah. then you're not going to be making it because that's the norm. For things to go wrong, for things to go the opposite way for the money not to show up for the people to dip out on you all those things that'll happen because of the the weird shaky ground you're in with new pursuits and ventures so yeah the there was that point when the business was kind of crumbling like my oldest kid was getting bigger wanted another kid things weren't good and i was like you know we're like renting places i need to have a place of my own like it's just nothing was solid and i was like i've got to do some work to make that happen wow yeah so that's kind of to go along with that too, um, if there were other, what are kind of like the one to two to three top best um, prized failures that you'd say you've had? <laughs> so the, the best one, the one I always share with students, in fact, the reason that I have this 
giant helmet that says not my fault on it. Um, we do a, a failure resume in one of my classes, so the students have to turn in a resume of all their failures to help us kind of reflect on the things that we just screwed up and what we possibly should be learning from them. Uh, and one of the ones that tops my failure resume is uh, <laughs> I had a client and I was redoing the website to set up a developmental space and I just kind of like gung-ho just ran into like doing this work. Uh, in the process, I deleted some very important things, which were their MX records. Mm. And MX records for a website are what allows people to get email. Oh. So the company lost all their emails and lost and did not have the ability to have email sent uh. to them. Well, they're a communications firm, which is even more problematic than just a normal person who doesn't have an email. So um, I spent a week convincing them that it wasn't my fault instead of fixing the problem. Interesting. So huge failure there. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Some of the other things I see were failures were times where I said, oh, you know, I'd rather uh, go do this unimportant thing this weekend than... Uh, send the proposal out for this job. I'll get to it on Sunday night. I know it's due Monday morning. And so when the RFP comes in, I just wait till the last minute. Yeah. And at the last minute, it sounds like garbage, sounds like crap. Um, so I did that two or three times when I know I could have landed the, the client real easily if I had just said, let me do it first and then go do the stuff. Mm -hmm. right? um, <coughs> excuse me. And um, But then I think one of the biggest failures is is not not working on my ability to work early on. So when I was going through doctoral work, I was telling myself I had so much work to do. So I had an entire year where I was paid by a fellowship, which meant I didn't have to go into an office. I could stay at home, do my work, get my paycheck twice a month. Everything mm -hmm. was good. I don't know what I did that year because I didn't do work, hmm. at least not in the sense that I should have. I mean, I had 40 hours a week. I didn't have kids. My wife was at her job. And so from eight to five, I just had no, like nothing was going on. And so I'd do a little research, read a few books, but nothing came about of it. I should have been just like killing it, but it didn't happen. So those would be the big, I mean, big things. Um, I tried to really minimize failure in terms of specific things that I do. Um, most of the time, the failure comes across most loudly in lazy procrastination. That's where it is. So with that being said, are there any key tools, um, routines, habits that you've kind of built in for yourself to kind of help mitigate some of that? Because that's very real, and it's, I feel like it's something a lot, a lot of us kind of deal with. Yeah, uh, I have a tendency to be somewhat type A in my mm. personality. And I think you find that a lot in designers, um, just because there's a, an attention to detail that's a little different. Um, but you know, if you look around, I have uh, to-do lists for every day of the week. And I use them in a very specific way, but then I also have what am I doing this month, this semester, this year? Okay. So always having like my goals visible and the things I need to do visible, because a lot of times uh, anxiety can be uh, a crypt keeper for a lot of things, mm. and I find anxiety pops up most in people when you don't really know what's going on. Interesting. Yep. So if I can look at this and say, okay, I've got these things going on. Well, as I mark them off, I'm feeling better about that. Yeah. But also they're there. They're mm -hmm. visible. Well, if I don't get through the stuff today, then I've got the board next to it. I just yeah. add it to that the next day, and I've got my to-do list when I walk in the office. Um, I picked this up from my brother-in-law, who is an ex-Navy SEAL, and he, uh, 
He said he's got years of notebooks where it's the same thing. Here's my to-do list for the day. Oh, these didn't get finished. Well, I add them to tomorrow's list, and they're the first things I do in the morning. A lot of that is just really learning yourself, mm-hmm. being a barrier to, to your own like uh, self-interest. Because most of us are can be honest enough at times to say, oh, yeah, I tend to just not get around to whatever thing. Mm. All right, well, then do something that requires you to do that thing first. And that really is a big thing is uh, what what sucks your time away and what uses your time wisely. Um, any student I've ever had will tell you uh, that they've heard over and over again how much I hate email because it is an urgent thing. It is not an important thing. Yep. So I hate email mm-hmm. because, I mean, I mean, look at look how many you get each day, how many you don't want. Um, my wife uh, stepped away from her uh, email for a week during Christmas. And she came back and she said, you know, I've got X number, hundreds of emails. And it was like less than six of them had any bearing on anything. There was no merit outside of a half dozen, which was probably 2% of the emails she had to go through. So... Minimize your busy work, maximize your important work, have your goals in front of you, um, and uh, honestly, like, another thing I say to my students all the time is, like, just calm down. Uh-huh. Just calm down. Like, chances are you're not in a dire situation where whatever you're thinking is going on right now is going to destroy your livelihood. That's very fair. Sometimes you might be in that space, uh-huh. but it's not as often as we act like it. So, make some to-do lists. Stop doing busy work. Um, maybe throw your phone into the sea and just forget having like all the social media crap. And then uh, calm down. Yeah, no, that's wise words. <laughs> yeah. Wise words. <laughs> definitely resonate. All right, so we're, we're pretty much coming to an end. Um, I have a few more rapid-fire questions mm-hmm. that I've kind of gotten. Um, and so the first one would be, um, what is one of the – purchases of $100 or less in the past year that's made the most impact on your life? Uh, books. Books? books. Anyone particular books. stand out? Um, oh, gosh. Uh, and that'll kind of segue to my next question, which what is one book that you've gifted or recommended the most to people? Oh, gosh, that's... Okay, well, I mean, if you... Too bad that if you're anybody list, just listening can't say this, but like, this is, these are just my books. Uh, if you go into my home, about six times more of these interesting. that don't have to do with my work. When we moved from Mississippi to Virginia, we had a 16-foot box truck, and eight feet of that box truck was books. Mm. Wow. So asking that question is like telling me, asking me, like, well, which one of your kids could you get rid of? Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's just like, I, I can't answer that. I don't know what the best book is. I'm just saying if you've got 100 bucks, spend it on books. <laughs> I don't care what they are. That's totally like, clear. Read. Uh-huh. Um, in terms of the book that I think I, that I've, I've gifted the most to folks... Oh, I don't even know. It's so tough. Uh, I'm trying to think through the books I have. Um, and this is a, definitely a question I was thinking about before coming into this interview because I had been here a few times. Yeah. I'm seeing the great uh, array of books that you have here. Yeah, it's really tough because uh, I so I don't have a lot of most of my friends are not like artists. Mm-hmm. They do other things, so. The books that I would read in my day-to-day, they probably wouldn't. Sure. Um, and so, it's, I don't know, it's a tough question. Uh, well, um, what is one of the books you're reading right now? I just got finished reading Of Mice and Men. Okay. Um, 
I was always kind of, uh, I, like we talked about earlier, everything was so laser po focused that I was like, oh, I need to read books about my work and what I'm doing. Yeah. And I found that wasn't always helpful. Because um, I started to get pretty cynical about things and real judgmental because all I was doing was in the same space. Um, but another book that I was that I'm reading currently is a fantastic little book that I did just recommend to a graduate course, um, and it is Paul Rand's Conversations with Students. Um, and so Paul Rand, fantastic mid-century modern designer, kind of a, a, a huge behemoth within the world of, of uh, design, and it's just. I mean, it's literally lectures that he gave that people have typed up, and it includes questions and answers from students. Like, so it's very, very much if you just sat in with a recorder and just recorded somebody's lecture and then made a book out of it. <coughs> but a lot of really fantastic insights um, in that. So that and that. Um, I've been reading back through uh, Michael Beirut's 79 Short Essays on Design. Okay. Um, it's a few years old, um, but it's a good one. And then... This is in the stack. So I'm not reading any of those currently. Um, yeah, uh, I, I am not a read one book at a time person, so I usually have about six or seven that have bookmarks in them. Drives my wife crazy because yep. she's a, let me have a book, let me read all the way through it. Um, she does the like four-course meal approach to a book, and Absolutely. I do the buffet. Yeah. So let me get like 12 different ones, sample through them, mm. I'll finish the meal eventually. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that. Yeah. So. Well, sweet. I think that's pretty much all that I have for you. Is there any um, thing specifically that you wanted to mention or highlight? Uh, yeah. Uh, your generation predominantly is defined by overthinking and underdoing. Fair. So try to reverse that. Okay. <laughs> There's a point where you should say, I'm done thinking, I need to make this thing happen and be real. And then I can think about it again. Okay. But we also, we most of the time want to say, if I can think this through 170%, then mm. I'll feel good to start an experiment. It's like, no, experiment. Get your hands dirty. So you think a good way to kind of first go about that is providing a solid, safe space to kind of make that happen? Because I feel like a lot of it is around just uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, you know, and sometimes you just got to embrace that, right? Uh -huh. That like, you may have convinced yourself that there's some certainty or security, but that's just fake. Mm. That's just fake. Um, I mean, when I talk about uh, when I talk about lat uh, lateral versus linear thinking, uh, what linear thinking does is it tells us that something that happened before is reproducible, so I can reproduce it. Who says so? How's that going to be successful? How do you know? It has the same rate of failure as anything else. And this is why people are like, you know, I started my own business. Like, no, you didn't. You franchised the subway. Right? You didn't start a business. Uh. You did something you knew wouldn't fail, mm. even though it could. Um, so when we talk about lateral thinking, creative business creation, things like that, fear is a huge, uh, a huge thing because we say, oh, if I don't have the metrics and I can't really uh, delineate the ROI, then nobody's going to really give me the money for this, so it won't be good. And it's like, well, you could have a crap idea and have all that information and still have a garbage product. Mm -hmm. Or you could have a good idea that nobody's really sure about. You could step into some of that fear and say, hey, I'm going to embrace this and be okay with this and move forward. And when everything says stop, I'll stop. But until that, I'll keep walking. And if you do that, then I think you're going to be more successful anyway because uh, you have a better, healthier outlook on things. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> hey, man, I appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. It's dude. always good, dude. <laughs> my pleasure, man. My pleasure. <laughs>